Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Sally James. For those of you who don't know me, uh, I'm a trade policy analyst with the Cato Institute's Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies. Mm -hmm. I'd like to welcome you to Cato's F.A. Hayek Auditorium uh, for a discussion on regulatory protectionism, a hidden threat to free trade. Uh, my colleague Bill Watson and I recently co-authored a policy analysis of the same name, uh, copies of which are available outside. Before we start criticizing it, we should start today's discussion by defining exactly what it is we mean by regulatory protectionism. And in the paper, we use trade lawyer Alan Sykes' definition, which is the use of regulatory policy to discriminate against foreign firms in a way that is not necessary to achieve a legitimate non-protectionist objective. It's also the practice of using regulations as a way to disguise protectionist policy. In 2009, in fact, the Wall Street Journal, in the context of carbon tariffs, called it protectionism in green drag. As we discuss in our paper, tariffs and other conventional trade barriers have fallen over the years, so the barriers that remain are more regulatory in nature and more sensitive to negotiate because they touch on issues uh, widely seen as being governed by national sovereignty, uh, and the liberalizing regulations would require the cooperation of bureaucrats uh, with little incentive to concede their power or scope of responsibility. So what we're left with essentially are the difficult issues, and they become more obvious when uh, the swamp of trade barriers is drained. The proposed US-EU tra uh, preferential trade agreement is expected to focus intently on uh, regulatory barriers and irritants that still plague the trade between these two countries. So this issue is going to become more important, I think. Um, we've also seen a rise in these sorts of barriers because lower tariffs and the legal ceilings that bind them force special interests seeking protection from foreign competition to seek ever more creative ways to achieve their goal. And the goal certainly sounds more noble when it's cloaked in rhetoric about protecting dolphins from harm or consumers from ostensibly substandard products. Ironically, though, it's consumers who suffer, of course, because of uh, regulatory protectionism. How much damage it does to the economy is hard to say. Deciding even what regulations have a protectionist purpose can be difficult, and even if it is clear, it's hard to measure. We do know it runs to probably billions of dollars a year based on the studies of individual markets, and there's a lot of them because the uh, World Bank estimates something like 30% of world trade is affected by standards, an even higher proportion than that still in agricultural markets. And the use of these non-tariff barriers is, is rising. To discuss these issues, we have uh, three distinguished panelists. First, we will hear from Bill Watson, uh, my colleague, a trade policy analyst here at Cato. Bill is responsible for all the good bits in the paper. Uh, he joined Cato in 2012. His research focuses on US trade remedy policies, disguised protectionism, and the institutional aspects of global trade liberalization. He also manages what I like to call our database of shame, a tool that tracks votes by Cong Congress and its individual uh, members on bills and amendments relating to international trade. Bill holds a BA in political science from Texas Christian University, a JD from Tulane University Law School, and an LLM in international and comparative law from the George Washington University Law School. Please welcome Bill Watson. Thank you, Sally. Um, 
And uh, thanks to Don and Jim for coming uh, to talk about the paper and maybe uh, provide some intelligent commentary. Um, <laughs> I don't know that all of the good bits are mine. Um, I'm really glad that Sally and I were able to work together on this. Uh, and hopefully today uh, I can show you how perhaps um, fighting regulatory protectionism is, is not so difficult as, uh, as Sally mentions that maybe we can uh, look at laws and figure out where the protectionism is um, and, uh, and figure out how best to um, sort of extract the protectionism from the regulation. Um, what I'd like to do in my uh, presentation is, um, I've already messed it up. There we go. Um, what I'd like to do is talk about how we end up with protectionist regulations, um, how a, a public interest law, uh, something designed to help consumers or to help the environment, public health and safety, can turn into a, a tool for domestic industries to exclude imports or can be an excuse for what is really a protectionist cause um, and how that happens and how it is disguised and maybe how we can look underneath it. Also look at uh, what systems we have in place today, what kind of safeguards uh, exist to help prevent regulatory protectionism and maybe what we can do uh, to strengthen those um, in the right way. So the, um, to let me, Sally did talk about the rise of regulatory protections. Let me go on and talk about how it is that um, the demand for regulation uh, results in substantive regulations that can serve two purposes. Um, we have kind of a, a fun uh, political model called bootleggers and Baptists, where um, the, the example uh, that gives it its name is the idea that um, there was, you can have one constituency that has a very high-minded, altruistic cause that supports a particular policy. In, in the case of the, the Baptists and the bootleggers, it's uh, alcohol prohibition. Uh, and you have another constituency that has a, a special interest, a financial interest, in that same policy. Uh, in this case, it's the bootleggers who benefit from having alcohol sales be made illegal at least one day a week, if not every day of the week, uh, and so they don't have to face competition. And um, but I think it's interesting, actually, today, you know, we still have, it depends on the state you live in, there are, there are laws that prohibit uh, Sunday sales of alcohol. I think it's interesting uh, today that it's actually the, the liquor stores that fight against um, uh, liberalizing alcohol sales because they don't want to have to compete against each other on Sunday. They like to have the day off. Um, so what you have here is a case of an altruistic cause that provides some kind of cover uh, to allow a, a lobby group, a, somebody that's receiving these concentrated benefits, uh, to press for a policy that they like without looking so much like that's what's going on. So let me provide a number of examples in the trade area where that occurs, and we can see how maybe we can create a new narrative for some of these laws to show why they are not as good as they ought to be uh, and, and how that came about. Um, 
Let me, let me just pick one of these two. I put all the examples from the paper on the slide. But I think it's good to talk about um, the lumber provisions in the Lacey Act. These were added in 2008. The Lacey Act makes it, um, basically makes it a crime to traffic in um, poached wildlife. It's been around for a really long time. Uh, applies to uh, tiger skins and elephant tusks. And in 2008, they added um, illegally, uh, illegally harvested lumber to the list. So if you are in the United States and you possess wood that was made from trees that were harvested in a foreign forest in a way that was not uh, legal under foreign law, you can be criminally liable or at least have your, um, have your wood seized. Um, now, this, this idea was certainly put forward by environmentalists who were concerned about uh, deforestation, about exotic forests. Uh, it has a very much a, a public interest component to it uh, that is that is not um, you know not sympathetic to anyone in any kind of lumber industry. Um, but the law, the way it came out, and the severity of the law is very much the result of the fact that the domestic lumber industry thought this was a great idea, because if you make it very risky to purchase foreign lumber. The alternative is domestic lumber. And it's actually really hard to make sure that your foreign supplier had all the right permits in a country, say, Indonesia, where maybe getting permits is uh, not a very transparent process. Um, and so you, you, there's a lot of risks involved. And you've basically, you, that risk is held by anyone who imports lumber. Um, whether it's illegally harvested or not, that risk is still there. And so there's an incentive to buy domestic lumber. Um, I think, though, that you can, you can say that even though this is a protectionist, this serves a protectionist purpose, there was, there was some public interest component behind it. Um, and this is an example of how maybe which, which policy is chosen uh, depends very much on, on how the, the special interest um, got involved in the political process. On the other end of the spectrum, uh, we have what are really just protectionist policies disguised as some kind of public interest cause. Um, I, my favorite one is the, um, the meat labels for, um, for country of origin labels on meat. Uh, the US requires that, that uh, meat sold in the United States uh, have a, a origin label depending on the origin of the cow the cattle, so even if the meat is made in the United States, if the cow was born in Canada, you have to put on a special different label. Now, maybe this has some kind of consumer information purpose to it. Um, but it's not consumer advocacy groups that are really pushing for this <coughs> law. The law was, was, was definitely uh, put forward and advocated by the US cattle industry. Um, and it turns out that the main impact of the law is that tracking requirements, if you buy Mexican or Canadian cattle in addition to US cattle, it makes it very expensive and inefficient to process those cattle and come out with accurate labels at the end of the day. So it creates an incentive to just buy US cattle. So it looks like you're providing information to consumers. But this, surely this is a good thing. Consumers want information. And it's not even the information that's protectionist. It, it's not providing consumers with 
information about whether it's US or Canadian cattle and then letting them decide for themselves. That, that's not the protectionist aspect of the regulation. It's having to conform to the regulation uh, that actually uh, shifts a burden uh, down toward the, uh, the processors of the meat in a way that harms Canadian cattle. Um, there are some other examples that I think are kind of in the middle, um, where there's maybe a, a, a strong public interest component and a strong protectionist component uh, coming together, um, and we end up with, with some kind of strange regulations. Uh, the, the first one I have on here is uh, the clove cigarette ban. In 2009, Congress actually banned cigarettes. The, um, the anti-smoking advocates, they're very excited uh, we had actually banned some kind of cigarettes. This was, this was a, a, a huge gain for them, a win. Um, the problem was that they only banned foreign cigarettes, and only one kind of foreign cigarettes that very few people smoke. And the idea behind the law was that the US tobacco companies were creating candy-flavored cigarettes, chocolate and fruit-flavored cigarettes, to try to entice uh, kids uh, to take up smoking. And so this sounds really terrible. Let's, let's ban these cigarettes. And by the time the law came, was, was shaped in Congress, there was an exception for menthols. Menthols are also flavored cigarettes. But a lot of people smoke menthols. And so there's a big market for menthols. And they were exempted from the ban. But by 2009, when the law was passed, the tobacco companies actually dropped the flavored cigarettes from the market. They were a flop. Nobody liked them. So the only kind of cigarette that was banned by the law was clove cigarettes, which are smoked by less than 1% of smokers. Um, and the flavored cigarettes that were left were by far the most popular ones. So what actually happened was that no one was prevented from smoking, uh, but the US tobacco companies, the arch nemesis of the anti-smoking movement, was able to get a competitor out of the market. Uh, so it, it really. It, it really just totally backfired, um, despite uh, you know, strong interests on both sides. Um, something a little bit more in the middle is the Dolphin Safe Tuna label. Um, both of these and the, and the cool regulations are, are cases of the WTO, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but the, um, it's interesting to see how the Dolphin Safe Tuna label came out, because certainly there are people who care about dolphins. Uh, consumers care very much about dolphins. There's a, a, a movement to prevent dolphin mortality in, in tuna catching. But um, because you have a disparity, between, a political disparity between the, the power of the US tuna industry and the power of the Mexican tuna industry to influence policy in the United States, you end up with basically two standards where one part of the ocean, dolphin safe label, means that dolphins, the dolphins are very safe there. Uh, that's where the Mexican tuna industry operates. But where the US tuna industry operates, the rules are, are a lot more lax. Uh, so you, you see a, a policy that just doesn't do a particularly good job of protecting dolphins. Um, and the only reason for that is, um, or the, the main reason for that, is because of the, the protectionist interest that kind of invaded the law. Um, so let me let me... Uh, step back for just a minute and talk about how it is that these uh, rules, how it is that these regulations come up against uh, some existing rules that are in place to prevent um, protectionist regulations. We have 
uh, in place uh, international law. Uh, the WTO imposes a, a, a number of rules on member nations. Um, the, the, I think the, the primary rule that impacts, um, that impacts these kinds of domestic regulations is the national treatment rule. Uh, that uh, once a good gets in, into the country, it gets past whatever tariffs and quotas that, that distorted its entry into the market, uh, it gets through all of those, and once it gets into the United States, uh, domestic regulations have to treat domestic goods and foreign goods the same. Uh, if they compete in the marketplace together, uh, you can't treat them differently um, in order to protect your domestic market um, in some kind of hidden way. Uh, you, you need to put all of that in your tariff. Um, now, there is obviously a, a problem with having international law decide the substance of members' domestic regulations. Uh, and so the, um, the WTO rules have exceptions to them, uh, that you, you can treat imports differently uh, if doing so is necessary to fulfill some legitimate objective. Um, if you have some other reason for regulating, and treating imports is, is you, you can show that you need to treat different, you know, similar products differently, um, then the WTO rules are, are not supposed to come up against that. Um, there are other rules in WTO law that are less, um, less about discrimination per se and are a little bit more objective and look at how laws are, are passed uh, and look at the substance of the law outside of whether it is um, obviously protectionist or not. Uh, they're, they're sort of uh, proxies for detecting protectionism. Uh, they're not perfect. Uh, they kind of cast out a, a, maybe a, a, a net that's a little too wide. Um, uh, for example, um, regulations must not be more trade restrictive than necessary to fulfill an objective. This is a, this is a standard that you can, you can evaluate. It's easy to, to look at uh, or easier to look at uh, and see whether, whether that's what's actually happening. Is, it, is this regulation more trade restrictive than necessary? Uh, it, it's possible that you could have a regulation that's more trade restrictive than necessary that isn't protectionist, uh, but it, it's probably a bad regulation anyway. Um, you know, if you're, if you're imposing a regulation that restricts commerce in any way uh, that's more than you need to, uh, you're probably over-regulating. So I don't feel too bad uh, that, that we're casting maybe a, a little bit of wider net. And there are also uh, some procedural requirements, particularly for what are SBS measures, for um, food safety, um, agriculture, uh, things related to the, the health and safety of, of humans, plants, and animals. Um, if you're going to treat products coming into the country uh, differently, you have to have some kind of scientific justification and you have to conduct a risk assessment. These are procedural requirements uh, that are independent of, the, of the, the actual substance of the rule. Now, uh, in US law, we do a pretty good job with science-based risk assessment. It, it's, a, it's a component of administrative law in the United States. It's been around for a long time. Um, it's not perfect because um, while it imposes a, a, a depoliticizing aspect uh, to the process, it's, it, you can still kind of get around it. Um, you know, science is not, is not completely immune to some kind of political uh, calculation. And we also have a cost-benefit analysis that happens in a lot of regulations. Um, 
There's a lot of uh, literature on what a good cost-benefit analysis looks like. Uh, so they don't always look the same. Uh, and and it's, you know, it's, it's quite possible to, to conduct your cost-benefit analysis and still come out with a pretty bad regulation. Um, let, me, um, let me go on and talk about what I think is the, um, the true impact of the international rules uh, on the political level. When, as I said, we have um, you know, three cases that, the, that uh, the United States lost last year at the WTO involving domestic regulations. And the, um, right now, actually, all three of those is the country of origin labeling, clove cigarettes, and the uh, dolphin safe labels for tuna. They were all found to be protectionist. Uh, discriminatory, and unnecessarily so. And right now, the United States is, is trying to comply. Um, they went through all the litigation process at the WTO, and now we're in the compliance stage. And we've seen two out of three, there have been proposed compliance measures. And the, the results are really mixed. Um, for country of origin labeling, we've seen a, a, what I think is a, is a step backwards, um, acting like it's compliance with the WTO ruling. Um, but actually making the law more protectionist. Um, with the Dolphin Safe Tuna label, there's, there's some forward movement, but it's not, um, I, I'm not sure it's enough. Uh, and I don't know that we'll see anything with clove cigarettes. Uh, so at some point, the, the, time, the time period will pass for the United States to come into compliance, and the complaining countries will be able to uh, retaliate, suspend concessions. What they'll do is raise tariffs on US products. And the the reason that this is important is because you can impact the political balance that, that shapes these laws when you bring in new interests to oppose them. So if Canada imposes tariffs on wine from the United States, you're going to have some congressmen from California that are now going to be upset about country of origin labeling for meat. They didn't care about it before. But now they have some kind of interest in it. And so I think that, that that's a way that the international rules can really help the political process by essentially bringing in more bootleggers, uh, more special interests uh, that might be opposed to the regulation. Um, so unfortunately, despite all of this existing, uh, we still have protectionist regulations. So what can we do to make it better? And, have a, a couple of proposals. Uh, one is, is concrete. I, I think that it would help if US regulators actually had to look to decide whether their regulations were more trade restrictive than necessary. Actually do the analysis, attempt to follow the WTO rules, and see what happens. Uh, I, it, it probably wouldn't prevent all discriminatory regulation, protectionist regulation, but it it might make a difference. Um, and it would be interesting to bring that debate into the domestic sphere instead of having to go to the WTO to address the issue. Um, also, uh, I think maybe even more effective would be to realize that we should be a bit more skeptical about some of these regulations. Um, there is a, a value for legislators, for people concerned about public interest, for free traders, to be skeptical about the, the substance of these regulations and how they're coming about. Um, and there are a number of red flags that I think 
really demonstrate that a particular regulation needs a bit more scrutiny. Um, and one of those is that the regulation is being supported by the domestic industry that's being regulated. Uh, typically, industries don't like to be regulated. Um, and when they do, when you see someone who's being regulated and they like it, it, it may be that it's, it's shifting a competitive condition uh, in their favor. So looking at the examples that we've talked about, um, the, um, you know, certainly the, the country of origin labeling rules were supported by the domestic uh, cattle industry. Right? Why is that? Right? Because it helps them. Right? Why does it help them? Because it makes it more difficult for their customers to do business with their competitors. Uh, and that's, that's, that's protectionism. So I, I think, I think we're, we're on, on safe ground looking for those kinds of issues. Uh, the Lacey Act, uh, where the, the, you see a very odd coalition between people who are very upset about cutting down trees and people who cut trees down for a living. Uh, is, there's some kind of shenanigans going on, uh, and we should be a little bit more skeptical. The, um, the, um, the next red flag, um, which I admit is a bit more, um, a bit more appealing to, to, to free market purists, uh, is the idea that um, maybe we shouldn't be having regulations when there's no market failure. Uh, the altruistic cause that is attached to some of these regulations uh, is it, it's a bit weak sometimes. So um, I, I think the dolphin safe tuna label is a really good one. Uh, it, it's not a regulation about uh, harming dolphins. It's a regulation about putting information on your can about whether you harm dolphins. So we already know that consumers don't want to harm dolphins. And they want accurate information. So it, there isn't any reason to think that, that consumers aren't going to demand accurate information and that that information is going to be provided to them in the free market. Um, we could have competition among different labels. This would produce a better label if we had competition. Um, you know, certainly uh, fair trade coffee is not something, I don't, I don't think we would benefit from having the government mandate what fair trade coffee means. Right now, people are debating that. Um, and, and the, the standard will develop, and it will, it will be something that, that those who care about the issue uh, will like the most, uh, because they've had competition among, the, among uh, various producers to come up with the label. Um, country of origin labeling is a similar situation, where um, you know, th there isn't really very much connection between something like food safety. Are, the, are these high quality, is this high quality meat? Is it safe meat? And whether or not the cow was born in Canada. Uh, so you, the, the public interest cause there is just not very well related to the regulation because it, it's a reach. Um, you, you, you've really got something else driving this regulation. Um, and I think it's worth considering what that is. Um, I would also like to talk about a few things that maybe um, we shouldn't be doing. There are... Um, some movements uh, in international negotiations that I, I think are troublesome, uh, that undermine the existing uh, multilateral rules uh, in, in troubling ways. Um, we've seen attempts at um, managing protectionist regulations, where you know that a regulation exists, you think it's protectionist, and instead of challenging it, we, 
try and find a way around it in a bilateral negotiation. A good example is um, uh, Korean auto emission standards. So in the, in the US-Korea FTA, um, US and Korea agreed that the United States could import a, a certain number, of, could export a certain number of automobiles to Korea uh, that, that the emission standards would not apply to. It's sort of a, a regulation quota. Uh, you, you, you could import a certain number of vehicles, and, and then the regulations would start applying. Uh, so you're treating the regulation like a market access barrier and, and, and trying to negotiate some, some way around it rather than recognizing that it's a protectionist regulation and it should go. Or maybe it's not a protectionist regulation and you know, how, how does um, undermining the regulation really help uh, the, the cause of free trade? Is, is this actually trade liberalization or just some kind of preferential treatment? And, and I think that's a, that's a problem. We also have um, some problems with uh, what I call contingent compliance. Uh, the, um, a good example that um, we use in our paper is uh, the, the uh, deal between the United States and Brazil um, to settle the, uh, the cotton dispute. So U.S. subsidizes cotton. Uh, Brazil won a case at the WTO. And there was a deal uh, put in place so that um, Brazil would not retaliate as it wanted to. It was just a, uh, you know, kind of a, an, an agreement on how, how that would go about. And uh, one of the things that the U.S. agreed to do was to recognize that a particular region in Brazil uh, was uh, free of disease for livestock. I think, it was, I think it was hoof and mouth disease. And this is, this is really bizarre because you can't, under WTO law, you have to have a scientific reason for treating different regions differently. Uh, and when you just admit that you have a, a political reason, when you, you can barter away whether a particular region is, is, uh, is disease-free and you allow imports from that region to come in, uh, you know, you, you've, you've, you've really shown yourself to not, not taking the, the, the rules very seriously. Uh, and, and it calls into question all the other distinctions that you've already made between those different regions if you can just barter them away. There's supposed to be a process for determining uh, whether it's disease-free or not. And if it is disease-free, it's against WTO law to treat it like it's not disease-free. Um, there are also some um, uh, creative exceptions uh, that, that we're seeing, uh, particularly um, this, uh, this new proposal uh, that the U.S. is considering uh, putting, making at the, in the TPP negotiations uh, to have a stronger exception for tobacco policy. Um, this is a very... Uh, I, I think a very a troubling development. Um, there are, are some people in the United States uh, concerned that, that trade rules are too restrictive uh, for uh, good tobacco, anti-tobacco policy. Uh, and so they want to make sure that the, the exceptions that apply uh, for, uh, for uh, protectionist regulations to allow more regulation in are, are stronger so that you can have, basically so you can have regulations that are protectionist. Um, and you know, that's not a very good way to go. It's not a good way to regulate tobacco. Uh, and if you need better exceptions for tobacco, maybe you need them for other things. I, I don't know why you would, under what principle you could just limit it to tobacco. Uh, so then you, you start a process of negotiating uh, product-specific exceptions 
Uh, I think it's good that we have a system where regulatory protectionism, it, there's a single system put in place, and, and we, don't, um, we, don't, we don't look to which product is involved or, or put in place political considerations. The best way to combat um, protectionism in regulations is to depoliticize the process as much as possible, or at least to, to restructure the political elements uh, so that you don't end up uh, with laws that, that act as a disguised way to protect domestic industry. Um, so let me stop there and, um, and just uh, to sum up, I think um, it's worth uh, remembering that, that regulatory protectionism is on the rise. It's a new problem. It's not a new problem, but it's, it's a bigger problem than it has been. Uh, that the current safeguards we have in place, they're helpful, but they're not sufficient. We, we should be looking for ideas on how to do something else. And that um, I, I think a couple of ways to do that uh, is, to, um, is to be a bit more, um, to put more restraints on regulators, to, to take the, the international rules more seriously in our domestic system, uh, and to be a bit more skeptical uh, of special interest influence uh, in public interest regulation. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. Our next speaker should be familiar to those in the audience who partake of the must-read blog Cafe Hayek. Uh, Donald J. Boudreau is Professor of Economics at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. Previously, he was president of the Foundation for Economic Education. Don's PhD in economics is from Auburn University, and his law degree is from the University of West, excuse me, University of Virginia. He's lectured and written widely on many to topics in scholarly and more popular contexts. Don's regular letters to the editor, which he shares with friends through email, are an institution, and they regularly provide me with the best and arguments and data uh, in favour of free trade. He just nails it every time. Uh, Don is a valued member of the advisory board of the Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies and a good friend of the Cato Institute, and a good friend of mine as well. Please welcome Don Boudreau. Thanks, Sally. It's a pleasure and honor to be here. It's my first time in the, the new Hayek Auditorium, and I'm, I'm impressed. Uh, I, <clears throat> Milton Friedman once said that a speaker should not you know, leave his audience in any uh, uh, mystery about where he stands. You probably know where I stand, but I, I do like, I just like the story. I, I drive a foreign-made car. Uh, it's actually a foreign-made car, and my Virginia um, uh, vanity tag reads F-R-E space T-R-D-E. I get seven characters in a space, and so I, I, I drive around in something called free trade. So you know where I'm coming from. Uh, Bill and Sally's superb paper is an excellent reminder uh, of many of the not-to-be-forgotten features of reality that are nowhere nearly as frequently forgotten as in the city in which uh, we now meet. Uh, reminding, uh, reading it, reminding me, first, of the insights of my late uh, colleague Jim Buchanan, and indeed of my still-living colleagues uh, Gordon Tullock and other, uh, others in the Center for the Study of Public Choice at George Mason. Uh, simply trusting political agencies to do what's right, or even to follow the spirit of the legislation that they themselves agree to follow in exchange for being awarded the perks of public office, 
is a fool's game. Uh, if they can augment their power, they'll do so, regardless of whether or not such augmentation promotes or not the public interest. The craftiness of homo politicus uh, to pick the pockets of the general public in order to swell the pockets of special interest clients is truly, if sadly, impressive. It's a chief reason why Bills and Sally's Buchanan-esque insistence on the importance of rules is so vital. Bill alluded to that in his presentation, but it comes out even more uh, in, in the paper about how uh, the danger that's done when uh, uh, governments, including Uncle, maybe including especially Uncle Sam, try to carve out exceptions to following the rules that they agree to under, under the WTO. Now, in, in theory, exceptions to this or that WTO rule, just as exceptions to any rule, uh, can sometimes promote the public welfare. In practice, such exceptions nearly always promote some private scheme to undermine the public welfare. Uh, this reality is why the rule of not breaking constitutional rules is so important. My colleague Jim Buchanan, my late, late colleague Jim Buchanan, uh, emphasized that. Rules that can be easily broken for this or that reason are not really rules. They're, 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 they're toothless aspirations at best. Members of my own profession, economics, have been far too clever over the past century or so in offering theories of how under just the right circumstances, battalions of selfless public servants, ones with no psychological quirks of the kind now famously revealed by behavioral economics, and ones also with cognitive capacities that would embarrass Einstein, can with sufficient discretion intervene just so here or just so there in order to engineer us all into a happier and more prosperous state. Uh, in this cleverness, my fellow uh, modern economists have been the unwitting dupes of rent seekers. And so, not surprisingly, Bills and Sally's paper reminds me also, although I think they don't, they don't name him, uh, but it reminds me also of, of Adam Smith. It's not difficult to do now. I'm teaching a seminar at George Mason on the wealth of nations, which is, which is great fun. Uh, if that great Scott were alive today to read this paper, he would not at all be surprised by the cunning and guile with which business people and their agents on both K Street and on Capitol Hill seek protection from competition. He would not at all be surprised with the energetic duplicity that they employ in seeking to have consumers serve their ends rather than have them serve the ends of consumers. Um, and as is always appropriate when one mentions Adam Smith, one must quote from Adam Smith since he's one of the most quotable and wise writers in human history. Uh, in, an 18, in a 1785 letter to the Duc de Rochefoucauld, uh, Smith wrote, uh, in a country where clamor always intimidates and faction always oppresses the government, the regulations of commerce are commonly dictated by those who are most interested to deceive and impose upon the public many of the examples that, all of the examples that, that Bill gave, I think, fit that description. These are attempts to deceive uh, the public into thinking that A is being done when, in fact, uh, not A is being done. Uh, and... Uh, as Smith wrote at the very end of his uh, a digression on silver, infamous or famous, depending upon your taste, uh, in The Wealth of Nations. This is a long quote, but I, I, I love it. It's quoting now Smith. The interest of dealers, of the dealers, however, in any particular branch of trade or manufacturers is always, in some respects, different from and even opposite to that of the public. To widen the market and to narrow the competition is always in the interest of dealers. To widen the market may frequently be agreeable enough to the interest of the public, but to narrow the competition must always be against it and can serve only to enable dealers 
enable the dealers by raising their profits above what they naturally would be to levy for their own benefit an absurd tax upon the rest of the fellow citizens. The proposal of any new law or regulation of commerce which comes from this order ought always be listened to with great precaution. This is the skepticism that I think Bill alluded to. Uh, uh, listen to with great precaution and ought never to be adopted till after having been long and carefully examined, not only with the most scrupulous but with the most suspicious attention. It comes from an order of men whose interest is never exactly the same as that of the public, who have generally an interest to deceive and even to oppress the public, and who accordingly have upon many occasions both deceived and oppressed it. End quote. I just love reading Adam Smith. Only the strictest, this is me now, not Adam Smith, only the strictest adherence to the market opening rules of the WTO will ensure that over time the wolf of economic nationalism doesn't sneak back into our political institutions wearing the sheep's clothing of fancy social engineering theories. But more than anything else, Bills and Sally's paper reminds me of the market opening rules that were set for the United States in the summer of 1787 by James Madison and other members of that constitutional convention in Philadelphia. As with, uh, Bill, uh, 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 as with uh, Adam Smith, Bill and Sally uh, don't mention the US Constitution uh, here, but, but it's all important commerce clause, I think has certain parallels with the WTO and the WTO dispute uh, uh, settling uh, mechanism. Uh, now, I'm no constitutional scholar, so I'm not going to get into uh, debates about whether the, the so-called dormant commerce clause was intended by the framers. Uh, that's for uh, Roger Pilon and other people uh, to debate. It may well be that Madison and company had no intention of turning the U.S. into one large free trade zone. I think that that was their intention. But again, that's not my expertise. But one thing that clearly is true is that the consequences of reading the Commerce Clause as a prohibition on state and local level protectionism have been unambiguously and hugely beneficial in the United States from the very beginning, since 1789, when the Constitution was finally ratified. And more to the point of this session, the challenges facing the courts over these past 224 years have been nearly identical to the challenges facing the WTO dispute resolution body today. State governments retain under the Constitution the authority to regulate, but the Commerce Clause prohibits the use of that authority to, prohibit in, to protect in-state producers against out-of-state rivals. Any reading of dormant commerce, call, no, any reading of dormant commerce clause cases reveals that state and local governments have long practiced the same sorts of duplicity to escape the free trade rules of the Commerce Clause that Uncle Sam itself practices to escape the free trade rules of WTO or tries to practice. Consider, for example, the 17, uh, 1977 U.S. Supreme Court case Hunt versus Washington State Apple Advertising Commission. There is such a thing. Uh, in that case, the court dealt a blow to a, uh, a rather scurrilous attempt by the state of North Carolina to shield its apple growers from competition uh, coming from apple growers in Washington state. Uh, Washington state graded apples, still does, uh, but the grade apples by a standard higher than that used by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And so Washington state apple growers who met these higher standards naturally advertised that they did so. It was a good selling point. I mean, they had to work hard to build, uh, build up this quality and to signal the quality. Uh, but North Carolina required, I'm quoting now the court, the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, all, North Carolina required all apples sold or shipped into North Carolina in closed containers be identified by no grade on the containers other than the applicable federal, the USDA, grade or a designation that the apples are not graded, end quote. 
North Carolina asserted that the purpose of this regulation was to protect consumers from the deception and fraud because, uh, stemming from a multiplicity of, of, of state grades. Consumers can't just can't wade through all that, so we'll just mandate that they only be able to look at the USDA uh, grades. The U.S. Supreme Court found that the real reason was to protect in-state apple growers from the competition of out-of-state growers, growers who had higher standards and who worked hard to ensure and to signal that higher quality. As the court said, quote, quoting out of the U.S. Supreme Court, the statute strips the Washington apple industry of the competitive and economic advantages it has earned for itself by an expensive, stringent, mandatory state inspection and a grading system that exceeds federal requirements. By requiring Washington apples to be sold under the inferior grades of their federal counterparts, the North Carolina statute offers the North Carolina apple industry the very sort of protection against out-of-state competition that the Commerce Clause was designed to prohibit. This case is only one of many of the sort that, for all of its failings on other fronts, perhaps, the American courts have done, I think, a remarkably good job of interpreting the U.S. Constitution as a document meant to ensure and protect a huge free trade zone within the United States. While the WTO differs in many ways uh, from the U.S. and the U.S. judiciary, uh, the latter's success at keeping states from using regulation to impose protectionism uh, gives me hope, at least, that the same can be done by the WTO. And Bill and Sally's paper provides a superb foundation for renewed commitment to make that happen. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Don. So you're comparing our paper to the Constitution, is yeah. basically yeah. what you say. <laughs> Good. I'm glad I invited you. Uh, our final speaker today is the distinguished jurist and thinker Jim Backus. Jim is a former member of the U.S. House of Representatives and a former chairman of the appellate body of the World Trade Organization that hears cases like we are discussing today. Since 2004, Jim has served as chairman of the Global Trade and Investment Practice Group at Greenberg Traurig, a Miami-based international law firm. He's also co-chair of its Global Practice Group. Jim is a wonderful writer and has published a fine book called Trade and Freedom. What's not to like in that title? As well as trade-related articles in national outlets, including Forbes and the Wall Street Journal. Jim holds a BA from Vanderbilt, an MA from Yale, where he was a Woodrow Wilson Fellow, and a JD from Florida State University College of Law. Jim also serves on our advisory board. He's a scholar and a true gentleman, and we warmly welcome him again to Cato and to the podium. Thank you very much, uh, Sally, and, and thank you all. It's good to be back uh, at Cato. I uh, admire much of what's done here. Uh, I'm also uh, always happy to be around uh, those who quote Adam Smith. Uh, I, I recall years ago quoting Adam Smith on the floor of the House uh, approvingly. And uh, I got uh, a letter from one of my constituents, uh, not one of my supporters, said, well, Jim, I'm glad you uh, are quoting Adam Smith, but uh, who do you really think is going to believe uh, you read a book as long as that one, uh, The Wealth of Nations? Um, so I'll let all of you judge. Uh, um, as a member of, what did you call it homo politicus, uh, homo politicus. Uh, perhaps a reform member, 
uh, perhaps an evolved member, uh, but as a member, uh, I will say uh, uh, perhaps alone uh, uh, among the species uh, here in this town nowadays, without qualification, I am a free trader. Uh, so I'll make that d disclosure to you. Uh, and of course, I have uh, uh, WTO imprinted forever on my forehead, having judged all those cases uh, in Geneva for nearly a decade. Also, I should, in full disclosure, uh, say this uh, to all of you, which is known to my colleagues. Uh, uh, I was among the outside counsel uh, advising uh, Mexico successfully in the tuna dispute in the WTO and in the country of origin labeling dispute in the WTO. Uh, and I also advise uh, uh, my uh, friends and clients from Brazil from time to time on their trade disputes. And uh, I advised uh, them in their capacity as an interested third party in the clove cigarettes dispute. Uh, so um, I have a point of view, but as was also um, observed, each of those three disputes is in the process of compliance uh, right now. Uh, the United States is given by treaty a reasonable period uh, in which to implement uh, the WTO rulings. It is said it will do so. Uh, we're hopeful it will do so. We'll see what happens next. I won't delve into uh, the details of those particular cases too much, but I would like to make a few observations uh, of a legal nature. I'm not an economist, and uh, uh, I'm no longer a politician. I certainly am a lawyer. Uh, and uh, I wanted to uh, just share a few um, observations about this issue as a legal issue in international trade. Uh, first of all, I would uh, say that uh, regulatory protectionism uh, is increasingly the issue in international trade. Uh, this is in part because we've been so successful in lowering traditional uh, tariff and other barriers to trade worldwide. Uh, countries are now rightly constrained from violating their obligations uh, to impose taxes at the border, uh, and that's what tariffs are. Uh, but uh, countries are ever creative in finding other ways in which uh, to impose restrictions on trade. And the issue is, as uh, uh, these Cato scholars have uh, advised us, uh, where and how we draw that right line between legitimate uh, regulatory uh, decision-making domestically and protectionism. Now, I think it's important also uh, to point out that protectionism is something that uh, very much lies in the eye of the beholder. There is no definition of protectionism in the WTO treaty. And indeed, it's also important to understand that uh, while I will stand here and say that I'm a free trader, I will also tell you the WTO uh, treaty is not a free trade agreement. All in all, the framework established by the WTO and the accomplishments of the WTO have lowered barriers to trade worldwide in all kinds of ways and do so every day. Uh, but they do not mandate free trade. They permit an opportunity and a framework and a place and a way in which countries can come together to create free trade if they choose to do so. That's an entirely different thing. In terms of uh, discerning uh, whether there is uh, a consistency with the WTO obligation, the question, question is not intent. It's not purpose. Rather, it is the effect 
of a particular measure. This is an important distinction. Uh, in legal terms, it is not a question of scienter. It is not a question of what you intended. Countries have many reasons for what they do, and some countries are more transparent than others. Ours is pretty much fully transparent. But just because one member of Congress stands up on the floor of the House during a debate and says, well, I want to do this and vote for this in order to protect my constituents from competition, that doesn't mean that the country is guilty in WTO dispute settlement. Indeed, this was a ruling in the very first appeal of the appellate body in the gasoline case in 1996, a case the United States rightly lost. Uh, so when you are discussing whether there is compliance with the WTO obligation uh, that prohibits discrimination, you have to look at the legal test for whether there is compliance. And then you have to look at the particular obligation in question. And what's happening now in the WTO is that we're moving beyond uh, cases that uh, for so long were uh, almost largely about the general agreement on tariffs and trade, the GATT, and now also, in addition, are about uh, two different agreements that have emerged relating to uh, the standards uh, that uh, now uh, deal with traded products in the world marketplace the agreement on the application of sanitary and phytosanitary measures, and the agreement on technical barriers to trade. And it was uh, under the agreement on technical barriers to trade, the TBT agreement, that the uh, appellate body, my successors uh, there, uh, the seven uh, judges on the appellate body of the WTO, rendered some landmark rulings uh, over the past year in those three cases on uh, tuna, uh, on uh, beef in the cool case, and uh, on clove cigarettes. And I urge you to take a look at what they concluded. Uh, first of all, it is entirely a different test uh, under uh, Article 3 of the GATT relating to national treatment and under Article 2.1 of the TBT agreement, which sets out the national treatment obligation there. The test under Article 3 is the test of the effect in the marketplace. Are the imported like products being denied an equal competitive opportunity with like uh, traded products that are domestic products in the domestic marketplace? The question is a factual question of effect, of whether there is a detrimental impact to the like imported products. This is also a requirement uh, that uh, must be met as a legal element under Article 2.1 of the TBT agreement. But the appellate body did not stop there, because in looking at the prefatory language of the TBT agreement, you see that there are instructions from the WTO members who concluded that agreement uh, to interpret its provisions uh, in the context of language that is not only reminiscent of, but uh, exactly identical to the language in the chapeau of Article 20 that sets out general exceptions to GATT obligations. So the appellate body, I think, rightly concluded that under Article 2.1 of the TBT agreement, you don't stop there. You don't stop in determining just whether there is a detrimental impact. You have to ask an additional question. And that additional question gets to the heart of uh, what Sally and Bill have been talking about in their paper. The additional question is, does this detrimental impact stem exclusively from a legitimate regulatory distinction? And this is, of course, basically the same kind of question that's going to be asked by the appellate body in making an Article 20 deliberation under the GATT. Uh, 
it's a, this is the way in which you discern whether there is protectionism, whether intended or not, in terms of purpose, uh, in terms of the effect. And this is why I think they are right in saying it is important to look at whether there are other measures. Now, as we all know who follow these cases, the appellate body has uh, stopped short of telling us definitively what another provision of the TBT agreement means, Article 2.2, which is the provision that uh, sets out the uh, uh, requirement that uh, in fulfilling a legitimate objective, you must use the least trade restrictive means. We don't yet know uh, what that obligation means because we haven't had full rulings on the issue in either of those three cases. I was at Boston College earlier this week meeting with uh, some of my uh, uh, fellow uh, academics, uh, you know, my academic guys, uh, and um, the law professors there are frustrated because uh, the appellate body hasn't told us every nuance of what each of these TBT uh, obligations means. I explained to them that's not the appellate body's job. That's not the appellate body's goal. The appellate body is charged by the members of the WTO with uh, assisting the members who are in dispute in resolving their particular dispute. That's its job. So it's going to rule only to the extent that it needs to rule to resolve any particular dispute and then stop there. Uh, the appellate body is, frankly, the opposite in its approach from what is often said in certain parts of Washington. It is not overreaching. It does not add obligations. It does not go beyond what's in the text. If anything, it is, can be described as fully strict constructionist. Uh, and this makes it difficult for countries that don't uh, like to comply strictly with their obligations and like to have a lot of elbow room to engage in a bit of noncompliance. One more point here. And then I'll uh, uh, stop and allow for questions. Uh, equally important to the TBT agreement is the agreement on the application of sanitary and phytosanitary measures. And here the question is uh, how much elbow room the countries rightly have in terms of uh, human plant and animal health and safety measures. Uh, this is an extraordinarily significant agreement. There are uh, a whole series of rulings from the panels and the appellate body that uh, give us a, a real idea of, of uh, what the uh, obligations in this agreement mean. I confess to having written some of the earlier uh, opinions. Uh, we uh, have more of a case law uh, corpus on the SPS agreement than we do so far on the TBT agreement. And there's some fundamental obligations there that uh, need to be uh, considered in uh, applying measures domestically. Fundamentally, be looking as the case law evolves uh, for questions about exactly what it means to say that a measure has a sufficient scientific basis. Be looking uh, for uh, further elaboration on uh, the whole question of the intersection between governmental actions through measures and private standards and private actions that uh, de facto and in their uh, effect in the marketplace through governmental action or inaction become tantamount to measures. These are cutting edge issues we'll be seeing in international law. I think that's uh, enough uh, from me. I will uh, conclude with an anecdote, if I will, purely for our amusement on the bootleggers and Baptist analogy. Some years ago, uh, back when I was a bit younger, I was in Florida 
and I was uh, working for a man named Reuben O'Donovan Askew, who was the greatest governor Florida ever had, and perhaps uh, one of the greatest any state ever had. I was his youngest aide and his right hand. He was very much opposed to casino gambling, uh, which was an issue that was coming to the voters' uh, attention in Florida through petition drives, and I was working with him against casino gambling. I don't know whether Cato would approve or not. But uh, in any event, I'm sitting there one day in my office uh, as uh, general counsel to No Casinos, Inc., and I get a call. The call is from someone named Donald Trump. Donald Trump uh, gets on the phone with me. He says, I hear you're the man to talk to when it comes to uh, getting a decision from Governor Askew. I said, well, Governor Askew makes all his own decisions, but here I am. And he said, well, my name is Donald Trump. I have some casinos uh, up in Atlantic City. I want to make sure there are none in Florida. I want to write you a check for a million dollars. I said, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Trump. Uh, we don't want your money. And he said, what do you mean you don't want my money? Everybody always wants my money. And I said, thank you very much. We don't want your money. Well, uh, you need to go talk to Governor Askew about this and let him make the decision. And I said, I don't need to talk to Governor Askew about this. We don't want your money. Uh, so uh, we, were, we were Baptists there who uh, didn't deal with all the bootleggers. <laughs> Thank you very much. And that Donald Trump fellow was never heard from again. <laughs> we have some time, about 25 minutes before lunch, to uh, have some questions from the audience. Uh, we have some roving mics. Please, uh, if you're going to ask a question, uh, raise your hand and wait for the microphone to reach you. When it does, identify yourself and your affiliation so we know who you are. And please make sure your question is indeed a question and a brief one, because we want to ensure we have maximum time for discussion and questions today. First question. Oh. First, any question? No question? Oh. Just okay. going back there. Sorry, Simon. Not that your question's not going to be a good one. I just wanted to make sure there was no non-Cato people. Uh, Simon Lester from uh, here at Cato. Um, I wanted to ask, we're fortunate to have a, a former legislator here, uh, Jim Backus, and I wanted to ask, Jim, if you could give us any insights into how you or your fellow lawmakers thought about these issues as you were legislating. Um, you know, to what extent did people take into account the effect on foreign producers, uh, you know, in terms of are we discriminating against them or just more generally? Uh. The, um, thank you, Simon. It's good to see you, my friend. In full disclosure, Simon and I used to work together in Geneva. <laughs> um, and you're lucky to have him here. The um, Preoccupation of uh, members of the House, I can't speak for the Senate, I'm not to blame for the Senate, never was to blame for the Senate, no longer to blame for the House. But the preoccupation of members of the House is with the confines of their own district. And there is constitutionally, uh, uh, thanks to Madison and others, this inherent tension for any member of the House, Madison himself was a member of the House, uh, between uh, their district and uh, its interest and the country and its interest. And then you add something that uh, Madison helped create but didn't fully envisage, which is a party system. Uh, uh, so that becomes an issue as well. 
uh, I always tried myself uh, to uh, vote for what I thought was best for the country um, because I figured that was probably going to be best for my district. And I was fortunate to have a district uh, that was one that was much engaged with the wider country. Uh, for example, with the space program and uh, with international trade. But everyone looks at it from the prism of their own particular political preoccupations. No one in the House worries really about um, what's happening overseas or how foreign traders or foreign goods may be affected, except to the extent and only to the extent that they are aware it affects their own district. And awareness is sometimes less than it should be. Uh, I w had the misfortune uh, in the House of actually having read the GATT before I got there, so I knew that there were obligations we had uh, generally, uh, and we might be in trouble if we didn't comply with them, but that was not a general preoccupation. Uh, I, I will recall one uh, meeting we had. I was uh, one of the original co-sponsors of the implementing legislation for the Uruguay round back in 1993 and 1994, and I can recall uh, one uh, meeting in particular where we were talking about what was actually in the dispute settlement understanding and actually in the treaties. Uh, and those of us in the, on the trade whip team and uh, trade subcommittee of ways and means were meeting together and, uh, and Bruce Wilson, who was uh, my friend from USTR and was working then at ways and means and later was the legal advisor to the WTO, uh, stood up in front of all these members as a staffer and said, well, we want to make certain that all of you realize that if we, uh, that we have advocated these uh, new rules that will make WTO dispute settlement systems binding on WTO members. And we've done so because we think it's important to US interests, but we on the staff want all of you to understand that these rules will apply to us as well. We might lose a case someday and then we'd have to comply with the ruling. And several members who shall remain nameless said, oh, that will never happen. Other questions? Okay, I better, my boss has got his hand up, so you better give it to him. Thank you, Dan Eikenson from Cato. Uh, Jim, I'm gonna pick on you again too, uh, but not, maybe ask you to put your other hat on, not your legislator's hat, but your WTO hat. Okay. Let's, let's assume that the U.S. government, or the, the, a law is passed that is, the intent of which is to protect U.S. government uh, computer systems from cyber infestation. Uh, and uh, it comes before uh, the WTO because the effect is that it discriminates against, say, Chinese uh, components, uh, telecommunications components. How do you think a panel would entertain this? This is we're talking about, int, you know, what, what what we're going after is effect, not intent. The, the intent may be pure. There may be evidence that there are there's a direct threat. Or there's a greater risk uh, presented from specific companies from specific countries. But if the effect is protectionist, uh, how 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 would the WTO deal with that? The, the first question with any legal issue and with a cybersecurity measure would be, does this fall within the scope of the WTO treaty? It must be something that falls jurisdictionally within the scope of the treaty. And some of these uh, suggestions with respect to cybersecurity that have been brooded about 
uh, are out on the outer edges of uh, the treaty's scope. Uh, one might ask in terms of uh, uh, the widgets of the internet, are they goods or are they services? Um, the United States and Europe have been debating this for some time. Uh, if they're goods, there is an absolute national treatment obligation. If they're services, uh, then um, there is a national treatment obligation only if a specific concession has been made for that specific service. And then, of course, as we know, out in the world of global value chains, services and goods are increasingly being blurred. So that's that's the first question, is there jurisdiction? The second question legally is um, what is the basis of the claim? In order uh, for there to be uh, the basis of, uh, of a claim, there not only has to be an obligation within the scope of the treaty, but there has to be also a governmental measure to be challenged. Um, uh, for those of you who are versed in US constitutional law, think state action. Uh, that's similar to uh, a measure in the WTO, but there is an expansive definition of a measure in the WTO. Unlike the NAFTA, there's no definition of a measure in the WTO. It's action taken by a government. When does a government take action? Rule, regulation, statute, sure. But what else? How else? And uh, as I said earlier, not every country is like the United States. Not every country has a code of federal regulation and an administrative procedure act. And it's a little hard to find the peanut in terms of what some countries do. I won't name any names. So you have to have a measure. And then you have to be able to establish that the measure is inconsistent with the obligation. And even if it is, there may be a defense. Potentially, for example, there is Article 21 of the GATT, which provides for a defense for national security reasons. If the United States were challenged with respect to any measure we enacted, that would perhaps potentially be our defense. Uh, in the entire history of the system since 1947, there are no cases on Article 21 uh, because no one wants to raise that defense. No one wants to have those cases. Uh, but this particular issue might give rise to them. Have a question? Um, yes, ma'am, down the front. Good afternoon. My name is Maria Garcia. I'm from Colombia's Ministry of Commerce. My question is directed to Mr. Watson. It's regarding the um, statement you made that maybe policymakers should take more into account the effects and have to be more reserved when adopting a certain regulation. I was wondering if you knew about Mexico's tool for policymakers by which all people related to the, to the regulations and to the expedition of these regulations have to take into account ex ante the, the effect it is going to take, to take in the commerce and if it's going to constitute a technical barrier to commerce or not. This is in, in order to prevent measures that constitute barriers for commerce to go into, the, into, into effect and actually affect commerce. I wanted to know maybe in the US there has been an initiative of this kind or it may be possible for someone to present an initiative as this for, to prevent US from issuing new regulations that can constitute um, certain barriers on commerce. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, I, I'm not familiar with that uh, with with that system. I, I'm curious to know how well it works. Um, the, um, I mean, certainly, um, I, I guess I guess I, I think what you're saying is that is that something should 
there should be a, a, a notice of some kind if there's a, a law that's, that's going to have enough of an impact on trade. Uh, and we, we know that, um, we, we designate it as a, as a, as a, a law that, a regulation that impacts trade, um, and then treat it differently or, or look into it or, or kind of raise a marker to, to look at it. I, I don't think that's a, that's a bad idea. Um, you know, certainly people sometimes get surprised, I, I think, uh, by a, a trade dispute after a, after a law has already been enacted, uh, not realizing that this might actually bother somebody. And, and particularly if, if, you know, congressmen uh, aren't even thinking about it at all. Uh, I, 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 think, I think that's maybe an interesting idea. I, I wonder how well it works out uh, where it's been done. Thank you. Mark Robertson from Potomac Global Advisors uh, here in Washington. And uh, for full disclosure, I also have worked with Mexico for the past 20 years on the tuna issue. Uh, thank you, first of all, uh, uh, Bill and, and Sally, for the wonderful paper uh, that, uh, that you put out uh, today. A uh, question about the uh, uh, in the context of what the U.S. has done on cool and, and on tuna or has signaled uh, uh, that they are doing in order to comply, and the indications that uh, perhaps neither of those will bring them into compliance with the, the respective rulings from WTO, uh, Jim, what is the, the process for suspension of concessions and how sensitive is the WTO's nose to uh, those ty types of, of veiled attempts at uh, at addressing the the issues raised. Um, thank you, thank you, Mark. Uh, as I said earlier, I won't delve too much into the substance uh, of these cases because they are uh, a compliance period, and uh, the United States has said that it intends uh, fully to comply with these rulings. Um, first of all, uh, the United States has a choice of whether to comply as all WTO members have a choice. It is a sovereign choice. The WTO can't make any country do anything. Uh, uh, most countries choose in an exercise of their sovereignty to comply uh, with adverse WTO rulings because there's a potential price if they don't comply. And that price in the treaty and spelled out in the treaty is the potential last resort uh, of uh, economic sanctions. Uh, these economic sanctions will take the form of lawfully imposed uh, uh, loss of previously granted trade concessions. And this can be very expensive. It can uh, be to the tune of billions of dollars annually. Uh, so this is one reason, other than just being good global citizens, that uh, the vast majority of WTO members choose almost always to comply uh, with adverse uh, rulings. Uh, China, for example, has a very good record of complying with adverse uh, WTO rulings when they're brought to the bar of uh, WTO justice in Geneva. Uh, if uh, the complaining parties in any of these cases are not satisfied after the U.S. takes action or proposes action within the reasonable period of implementation that this is in fact compliance, uh, then uh, they have uh, uh, two options. One, they can uh, seek uh, uh, economic sanctions as a last resort, 
or two, they can seek a review in what's called an Article 21.5 proceeding under the dispute settlement understanding uh, of the actions taken to implement the ruling uh, for uh, a determination by WTO jurists uh, whether there is, in fact, uh, compliance or not. Uh, so the panel would be uh, brought back to uh, take a look at the case, and ultimately the appellate body would make a decision. Uh, so, so this is what could happen. And occasionally we have had uh, instances where there have been these Article 21.5 uh, proceedings. Uh, uh, I think we had one in the Brazil cotton case some uh, years ago. We had them in the disputes between uh, Brazil and uh, Canada over uh, regional aircraft subsidies. Uh, this is all part of uh, the process. Now, whether any of the countries uh, involved would want to continue to litigate on this issue is entirely up to them. That's their sovereign choice. The lady up the back. And we come to you, Dan, I promise. Hi, my name is Lisa Kilday, and I'm a patent attorney who also does international trade. Could you speak a little closer to the microphone? Sure. We can't hear you. Um, my question is for Mr. Watson. Um, you talked about the benefits and the bootleggers, the Baptists and the bootleggers. What if we're on the other side of the issue here? Like right now, India just had a recent ruling on Novartis's uh, patent, um, drug, cancer, anti-leukemia drug. And the, from now on, it seems that India is um, going to let their generic industry thrive and continue to grow and not issue um, patents for for innovations that were originated in the West. And um, with that, um, you know, they're doing this under the auspicious of um, public welfare, and but this is just going to increase the free market of generic drugs in their country when in reality most half of their drugs are exported um, and make, makes a lot, India a lot of money. So how is the U.S. and Western nations going to handle this, this ruling when we feel that's really a prote protectionist measure that India did towards their generic industry? Well, I, I think I'm going to punt on, on that question. The um, you know, intellectual property in, in, in trade law is a, is a, a very tricky issue. Uh, what are countries required to protect? Uh, what is the extent of that? Um, I, I don't think it's the same as a, as a protectionist regulation. You're, you're not seeing uh, protection of, of the Indian market um, from, from imports. So I, I, I think there's, there's a, a, it's a different kind of situation. And, and the intellectual property rules are, are uh, you know, not my area of expertise. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I think there's a, a, you know, a reasonable question about whether that's compliant with the TRIPS agreement, and, and it either is or it isn't, um, but, um, but that may be as far as it goes. The last question to Dan. Dan, Dan Pearson, U.S. International Trade Commission. If the world wishes to accomplish greater liberalization in tariffs, conceptually it's quite simple. You, you set a target to reduce by 50% or 100% and you work toward that. In the event the world would wish to achieve greater regulatory 
achieve less regulatory protectionism, and there was a trade negotiation that was actually focused on trade liberalization. Is there some simple conceptual way to work toward greater liberalization, or is it article by article, point by point, trying to add clarifications? Or is the agreement already sufficient to deal with regulatory protectionism? I, I just uh, gave an hour lecture on Boston College on this very topic. I won't, you'll be happy to hear, repeat it here, but I can send you the text, or Sally has it. Um, the ultimate answer would be harmonization. WTO rules don't mandate harmonization, but uh, they encourage it. Uh, and uh, there are many, many ways to move toward it. In some ways, bilaterally and regionally, we're trying to move toward it, but a danger is that uh, in acting bilaterally and regionally, we may end up uh, uh, building barriers to trade uh, uh, on perhaps a geopolitical basis and, and not really lowering barriers to trade. The SPS agreement and the TBT agreement, I think, are very good agreements. Uh, but uh, they're not the final word. Uh, they were never intended to be the final word. We should be uh, revising some of those existing rules, uh, uh, adding to them, uh, and I would suggest the need to do so on a global basis. This should be a priority for the WTO members working together uh, as a, a WTO. Uh, uh, some of these issues are fairly easy. One of the issues dividing the United States and Korea and auto trade right now is that uh, we uh, put the VIN numbers on uh, our automobiles on one side of the windshield and they put them on the other. We should be able to work out a compromise there and that would make sense and, uh, and enhance the flow of trade while protecting uh, consumer uh, concerns. Uh, but then there are issues such as genetically modified food where uh, the United States and Europe have entirely different approaches based on entirely different views, uh, even of what it says uh, uh, to say uh, that something is scientific or not. This won't be easy. And we're just talking about us at this point. What about the rest of the world? And one of my points would be that ultimately, if we're going to uh, uh, lower barriers to trade worldwide as much as we can, uh, we need to uh, enhance standardization worldwide as much as we can and draw the, the right lines between the perfectly legitimate need to uh, regulate domestically in a whole array of areas and the need to fight against regulatory protectionism. And this has to be done, as we like to say, in the WTO on a case-by-case -case basis. Juan, did you want to add anything? No. I agree. Uh, if, I, if I could advise some caution, um, you know some of those some of those issues with with harmonizing regulation. Uh, you know they, they may be noble goals, but they're not necessarily fighting protectionism. Uh, you, you know protectionism is just one aspect of that, um, and I I don't know that every regulation that imposes some kind of trade friction that that acts as a as some kind of barrier to trade uh, is necessarily something that, that we should go after, that, that we should negotiate away at the WTO, uh, or that we should negotiate away this, the same way. Um, you know, in some sense, going after regulatory protectionism is a way to, um, it's a way to cement the tariff negotiations that we've already done. So if you, if you 
get rid of protectionism in tariffs, you need to make sure that that protectionism doesn't go somewhere else, uh, that it doesn't just materialize in a, in a more hidden way uh, in domestic regulations. And so in, in that way, the, the existing rules are really a, a complement uh, to the tariff reductions. Uh, going beyond that toward a more toward a system of, of, of harmonizing regulations uh, really kind of gets into a very different sort of uh, global governance uh, regime uh, that, that may have some of its own drawbacks. I, I agree, and so does the appellate body, uh, based on its uh, rulings on Article 2.1 of the TPT agreement in the close tuna uh, and uh, cool cases. Unfortunately, we're out of time for the uh, formal part of this forum, but before we break for lunch and uh, continue discussion upstairs, please join me in uh, thanking again the panellists for their thoughtful presentations and their time today. Thank you.